The following audio is from Shady Grove Presbyterian Church in Rockville, Maryland. Our mission is to follow Jesus Christ and labor for His kingdom both in our area and around the world. For more information about Shady Grove Presbyterian Church, please follow us on Facebook and visit ShadyGrovePCA.org. Morning again. Um, last week, some of you may remember, Charlie began our current preaching series about Peter, uh, subtitled The Making of a Disciple. And uh, this morning, I think, more or less uh, fits in pretty well with that. We'll be looking at Jesus' infamous short-term mission trip to Samaria and the woman at the well. Uh, Peter is not specifically named in uh, this story, but the disciples are the story within the story. And the issue that rises to the surface is one that we know from other stories is of critical concern to Peter. And it has to be addressed. This is an important moment in the training of the 12. Jesus certainly deeply cares for the salvation of the Samaritans, but how it all unfolds is with the disciples' growth in mind. In reflecting about Samaria, I imagine uh, how John must have been smiling and chuckling as he wrote this story. The disciples are so clueless, almost painfully so, to the point of being funny. And as we laugh uh, at them from time to time because of some of their missteps we see in the gospel, I think we are meant to realize that we're not all entirely unlike them. It's easy to think that we know and that we get it to later realize that we knew nothing. So what is the story about? What must the disciples learn and understand and grow in? In a word, friendship. And just like the parable of the Good Samaritan where the point was not who is my neighbor, but rather am I a good neighbor to all, the point here about friendship is not who is my friend, but rather, am I a friend of all? Do I befriend all? Anyone can love those who love them, who are like them, who can benefit them, but the, but the friendship God's people are called to goes counter to worldly wisdom and gets extended to strangers and foreigners and the poor and the lowly, the weak, the different, and even to enemies. And it ought to well up in those who have received the gift of God and have experienced the kindness of God through Christ given for them. I enjoyed uh, listening to my group uh, a month or two ago when I, I asked them this question last month. I asked them, what is the beginning of friendship in our youth ministry? And they immediately said, well, you know, like saying hi or, you know, a handshake or introducing yourself, being welcoming sitting with them, including them. And, you know, those were great to hear. All that, all that is true. One of them said, the sixth grade move up. I love that. Um, that's a very early moment when someone comes into our youth group and we try to flip the script a little bit uh, instead of making them feel like they're at the bottom of the totem pole, which often is the way it is in youth culture for the younger ones. Um, we try to do what we can in our little way to sort of roll out the red carpet for them and, and uh, try to communicate, and I think it does, uh, respect and a place of belonging with us. 
I told them that these were all great and practically speaking, they were dead on. But in reality, the friendship of our youth ministry starts earlier. And they were like, well, then they were, how about baptism? I was like, yeah, that's great. Definitely there. And they were like, conversion. I was like, yes. I said, yes, all true, but earlier. And they said, well, the cross, you know? And I was like, okay, you're on the right track. Absolutely. Friendship does start there, but even earlier. And they were like, creation. I was like, yes, but even earlier. And they were like, predestination for not, you would have been so proud of our Presbyterian children. They were just, <laughs> they were just going for it right down the line. And I said, I said, yes, but even before, in the beginning there was God and God enjoyed triunal friendship in his three persons. Ministry begins in the friendship of the Trinity. Did I say ministry? Yeah. Uh, which he extends to us and he invites us into. We hear Jesus saying to his disciples, I call you friends. For everything I learned from my father, I have made known to you. And the night before the cross, he said, greater love has no one than this, that he lay down his life for his friends. And you are my friends if you do what I command. We sing, what a friend we have in Jesus. And of course, because he couldn't be a better one. He was rich. Yet he became poor for us so that we through his poverty might become rich. That's what only a friend would do. He tells us, I'm preparing a place for you so that you may be where I am. He prays, Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am and to see my glory. How can that matter to him? But it does. He's our friend to the end. He says he's holding us in his hand and no one can snatch us out. Now that would be a dreadful thought if we weren't his people, but if we are his friends, that we can rejoice in that and find our peace in that. And then he says to us, come, follow me, let's go make some friends. I want you to know my joy, the joy I have in my father and the joy I had in making you my friends. This story gives us a perfect picture of what friendship looks like and what it does not look like. Now, in giving you the passage, let me just say from time to time, I'll quote the passage to the students uh, when teaching them. And I think it helps mix things up a bit and it can feel a little bit more interactive than just looking down on a page. So I thought I would do that with this familiar passage. And so feel free to read along, but really I'd rather, rather you not. Um, and if I get something wrong, these guys up here uh, will be more than happy to point that out. So, uh, so here now, John 4. Now Jesus had to go through Samaria. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about the sixth hour. That's high noon for you and me. When a Samaritan woman came out to draw water, Jesus said to her, will you give me a drink? The Samaritan woman said, you are a Jew, and I'm a Samaritan woman, so how can you ask me for a drink? Jesus answered, if you knew the gift of God and who it is who asked you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. The woman said, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us this well and drank from it himself as did also his flocks and herds? 
Jesus answered, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give him will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give him will, will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said, sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming back here to draw water. Jesus told her, go, call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she said. Jesus said, you are right when you say that you have no husband. The fact is you've had five husbands and the man you are now with is not your husband. What you've just said is quite true. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but the place where you Jews claim that we must worship is in Jerusalem. Jesus answered, Jesus declared, I tell you the, uh, I tell you the truth, the time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem, for salvation is of the Jews. But the time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit and his worshipers must worship him in spirit and in truth. Then the woman said, I know that the Messiah is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, I who speak to you am he. Just then his disciples came back and found him talking with a woman, yet no one asked, what do you want? Or why are you talking with her? Then leaving her water jar, the woman went back to the town and, and told the people, come see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? And the people came out of the town and made their way toward Jesus. Meanwhile, his disciples urged him, Rabbi, eat something. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you know nothing about. His disciples said to him, because someone have brought him food to eat? My food, said Jesus, is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. Do you not say four more months and then the harvest? But I tell you, open your eyes and look at the fields. They are ripe for harvest. Even now, the reaper draws wages. Even now he harvests the crop for eternal life so that the sower and the reaper may, may be glad together. Thus the saying, one sows and another reaps is true. I sent you out to reap what you did not sow for. Others have done the hard work and you have reaped the benefits of their labors. Many Samaritans in that town believed in Jesus because of the woman's words. He told me everything I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to Jesus, they urged him to stay with them and he stayed two days and because of his words, many more became believers. They said to the woman, we no longer believe because of what you said. Now we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this man really is the savior of the world. <laughs> when Jesus saw the Samaritan woman, what did he see? Something obviously very different from what the disciples saw. They both saw someone of very little standing, someone of no earthly consequence, whose people were despised, and who among those people who were despised was herself most likely shunned and disgraced, who has to get her water alone and at the heat of the day. In her low esteem, she's just as shocked that Jesus speaks to her as the disciples are. Little did she know who he actually was and who she was to him. That when Jesus, the King of Kings, looked at her, he saw a precious daughter and she was in need of rescue. She needed a friend and there's no friend like Jesus. 
to minister to her, Jesus needs to gain her trust. He meekly and gently, as the Lord of glory, condescends to earn that from her, to earn the right to be heard. He engages with her in a way that uniquely suits her, with every word calculated for maximum effect to address and accommodate her uncomfortableness, her shame, her confusion, her doubts, her questions, her curiosity, her hopes, and her longings. He ministers to her in the understanding that the issues of a scandalous Samaritan woman are different from those of a Jewish fisherman or of a member of the Sanhedrin, though their need for him is exactly the same. He knows her friend language, what communicates to her respect and genuine concern. Sometimes in youth ministry, it can be seen by some as just a lot of fun and games and more fluff than substance. Um, and no doubt you'd see a lot of fun and games in, uh, in our youth group. Uh, but what some people may miss is how fun and games are used to gain a foothold and what connections um, that it can help make that are necessary for developing relationships. For, much, for, for many youth, having, having fun and, and being able to play games with them, are, that's a strong friend language for them. What does it mean, for instance, for a youth to, ha you know, to have fun with the youth and to play games with them or to go to a movie with them or to attend a, uh, a game or a performance or a recital or something or to take them to Chipotle or to Colstone or laser tagging or even to take them up to camp at Covenant Village? What does it mean? Well, the answer is a lot. They start seeing us as part of their world. I mean, you, gotta, you got to get into their world. How do you do that? Jesus went to Samaria. He had to be there. We have to be there in their world, taking time to be with them. And they need to see us as wanting to get to know them in a way that communicates to them that we do. I mean, we want to get to know them, but how do we communicate to them? And it's, it speaks loudly just playing with them and being there. That, that we care for their concerns and, and that we actually want to do things that they want and things that they desire. All kids definitely are different, but it takes time for them to feel comfortable around you and to determine that they like you and that they want you to be a part of their life. It doesn't, you just don't snap your fingers. I mean, you think they should want to. I mean, look at me, they should want, but no, it's just like, it, you, you need to earn that over time. Uh, a few months back, one of our sixth grade boys, we got a mighty group of, of uh, middle schoolers and uh, awesome group. We just interviewed them this past week in our, in our communicants class and um, just extraordinary interviews, really enjoyed this bunch of middle schoolers. But one of them, a few months ago, asked me to come to his basketball game that he was playing in. And, and I told him that I would love to come, but it's Valentine's Day. This was a night game, it was a Valentine's Day, and that I was going to be out with my wife. And, but he said, well, tell her, you know, tell her, I'm, I'm really entertaining. And uh, <laughs> so I, I, I went home and I just said, you know, wife, he, he says he's really entertaining. And, um, and He's, he's, he's invited me to come, and uh, she said, you know, it kind of, kind of sounds important to him. Why don't we, let's just, let's just do it. Let's go to the game. So uh, we went to the game, and, and this game, you know, and it was important that we did, but this game wound up being a little different. It kind of had a funny ending to it because this was the first round in the playoffs, and they were supposed to kill this team. They beat them twice before, I and mean, it was supposed to be a walkover game for them. 
all fun, but it did not turn out that way. It was just one of those games that just goes the wrong way. Everything goes wrong, and they ended up losing a heartbreaker. Brutal. It was tough. And, um, and obviously, there was, the team was very, very upset, and we waited for them, decided to wait for them to come out of the locker room. And, um, and, and this boy was... was Rightly, genuinely, very, very upset. And he, he, in fact, he went off into the lobby and, and uh, was just kind of sitting by himself and, and um, gave me the opportunity just to kind of walk over to him and just, just real, real plainly just be able to say, sorry, man, you know, sorry. You know, sometimes, every once in a while, life is like that. Things, things are crazy sometimes and it doesn't always turn out the way we think it's going to turn out. Don't worry about it. We did really enjoy watching you out there, really appreciate you inviting me to the game. And, you know, he was able to say, you know, he was able to say thanks. And, and um, what, what was kind of interesting about that, you know, because like just, you know, when you decide to just be somewhere, you don't always know exactly what's going to happen. I think that was a little bit more significant of a moment to choose to, to happen to be there. I really was happy. I was much happier when I realized how the game had turned out that I was able to be there to encourage him at the end and support him. And um, interestingly, because the team lost, he was able to attend our, our winter retreat that weekend, which I don't think he was going to be able to come on. And, and he was able to tell me that his, his parents had helped him to think through the situation. And, um, and so when he showed up, he said, God must have really wanted me to be on this trip. And, um, and I think that was a, an awesome tag team with the, with the parents on that. And, you know, our retreat just happened to be on joy that weekend and how it rises above all circumstances for those who know Jesus. And so it was just right on target there. Um, I would like to give a shameless plug for our youth ministry. Um, our... <laughs> Our church puts a high priority on youth ministry, and rightly so, I think, for uh, how much of a critical time it is in one's life. We have a great crew of, of homegrown interns that are going to be starting up in just a couple weeks, and our camps are on the schedule now, and, and uh, I can think of a few things that are more helpful to one's spiritual growth and maturity. So save the dates, uh, cornerstoners out there. Uh, all of you guys, we really want you to come. And um, God has made us a body, and each one impacts everyone else. And we really feel it when someone isn't there. So really, hopefully, you'll make that a, a priority. All right, well, back to the point I was getting at. Uh, in befriending and ministering to others, God works through us, not only in telling them about Jesus, but just as much in establishing the kinds of bonds that God uses to help, to help make them ready and eager to hear the good news from us. And from what I've experienced, that's more of the, the heavy work, the harder work, the, the longer work, the slow work, the persevering work. That's, that's, that's where a lot of the work is. And it's sort of like you know, missionary work where missionaries you know, put in a great deal of thought and effort and creativity uh, just to gain the ear of those that they've been sent to minister to. With the Samaritan woman, uh, Jesus so wisely breaks the ice by putting himself in the place of needing her help to get what he wants. She knows that no other Jewish man would accept her help, let alone ask for it, yet Jesus did. And now she needs to ask him to know how he could do that. What kind of insanity is this? And then Jesus answered back to her is my favorite part in the story. He said, 
if you knew the gift of God and who it is who is asking you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. In essence, if you knew what I knew, you wouldn't be wondering if somehow I don't realize what you are. Instead, I know exactly what you are. And I know exactly what you need and exactly what your soul is longing for. And if you asked me, I would give it to you for I came for such as you. But she didn't know. And so she treated the Lord of glory, the spotless lamb who is her righteousness, her creator, her perfect eternal husband-to-be, exactly as we would expect her to treat him. No amazement, no affection, no gratitude. In her ignorance, she could not begin to fathom what this meeting could mean. She had a routine going and this day was nothing different. It becomes pretty clear that she doesn't really like carrying water uh, every day. Uh, who would? But we can surmise from what we learn that she has other concerns too. She carries a lot of guilt and shame and insecurity, lack of family, lack of future prospects and improvement of life, and the isolation of an outcast status for being a scandalous woman. She is a bruised reed. She was lost. Whatever was on her mind that day, it did not include Jesus, nor could it have yet. If Jesus doesn't speak, this is a non-event, but he's not willing to leave her that way. It's time for the lights to come on. It's time for her to meet her loving savior and find the satisfaction she truly thirsts for. The conversation begins with Jesus asking for a drink, but before you know it, the Samaritan woman is asking Jesus for the living water he says he can give. I suppose, honestly, I was talking to the kids this morning that when she asked for it, it's probably sarcastic, you know, oh, give me this, you know, it's, you know, it's kind of hard to think of her asking it maybe in any other way that isn't sarcastic, but Jesus did say if you asked, he would give it. He didn't say if you, you asked, you know, it, didn't, it couldn't be sarcastic. I mean, he just said if you asked, he would give it to you. And so she asks, so he's going to give it to her. And what a way he does. Go, call your husband and come back. Now, does he know she doesn't have a husband? Of course he does. He's waiting for the answer. I have no husband. Ah, you are right. You are right in telling me about yourself. You're right about yourself. What do you know? Uh, you, you are right. The fact is you've had five husbands and the man you are now with is not your husband. What you've just said is quite true. What must be in her mind? This man's a prophet. And he knows me more than anybody, and yet he does not reject me. But she has a troubling question, which people often do, and Jesus honors her again by giving her a thorough answer. And now with maximum peaked curiosity, she makes a statement knowing that however the prophet responds, it's going to change her life. And she says, I know that the Messiah is coming. I'd love to know how she said that. Like, did she kind of look at him? Like, I know that the Messiah's coming, sort of out of the side of her, like, wondering. In, but in responding, Jesus says, now the Messiah, by the way, for those who don't know, the Messiah is the, the promised divine Savior and King of the, that the Jews were waiting for, who had been prophesied hundreds of years before. In responding, Jesus chooses to give her the most straightforward response he ever gives to anyone about his identity, simply saying, I who speak to you, he. And no sooner does she come to this realization that the thought hits her, the Messiah is right here and my people don't know it. But if they would just come and see, they could be filled too. 
She had come to the well full of personal concerns that dominated her life, but when she left, they all had to bow to the new concerns that now consumed her. And to underscore that point, she runs off even leaving her water jar behind. She knows she's coming back and not alone this time. She's a great reminder that Jesus really is the pearl that we were made to be satisfied in. She now knew the light and lived in it, but her town still carried on in darkness, not realizing that their soul's delight was just a short walk away. So she runs off to tell them, for she now knew, as Jesus had known about her, that if they knew the gift of God and who it was who sat by the well, that they would run and ask him for it and he would give it to them. So she goes and they come and he gives it to them. Now Jesus had just, he could have if he wanted to, he could have just gone into the town and reached them all by himself. He didn't need her to do that. But by sending the woman to them as a friend, he binds them together in friendship and restores her to a place of honor in the town. But inside this beautiful story is another one that stands in stark contrast. Jesus' disciples return with food for Jesus, whom they left alone at Jacob's well. When they came back, they noticed that he was in deep conversation with a Samaritan woman, and they are bewildered. Not, oh, I wonder what they're talking about, looks interesting kind of bewilderment. No, not that. That thought never entered their minds. Their elitist chauvinism overwhelms such good, healthy curiosity of what actually was going on. No, they are baffled. They can't imagine how or why Jesus is actually engaging with her. She must have wanted something of Jesus. And they wonder, what do you want? Not even considering that Jesus could have been the one who, who uh, was the one who first started off by asking her for something. Too bad, isn't it, in wondering what she wanted in such a snide and dismissive way that uh, they didn't actually get it. Had they actually cared about what she wanted, they would have learned that that was exactly what the two of them were talking about and that Jesus had just given it to her. And they could have shared in the moment and rejoiced in the sweet fellowship with Jesus. But instead, they can only be surprised at Jesus, thinking, why are you talking with her? Such deserving disciples that we were, that they were, nowhere in them is the thought, who am I that Jesus would talk to me? No need for such a question, for the answer is obvious. We are worthy of being addressed and she is not. It's scary how easy this is to fall into. It's very Jonah-esque, receiving grace from God and thinking certain others are undeserving of it. We can be redeemed, but some others are beyond its reach, failing to see that if we can be saved, then anybody can be saved. Jesus cannot let this go. It's way too important. Therefore, in response to the disciples' offer to eat the food they had just brought him, Jesus says, I have food to eat that you know nothing about. Not recognizing the scathing critique of them, his disciples actually ask each other, could someone have brought him food to eat? 
My food, said Jesus, is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. He's saying to them, what I've been doing here and what I'm all about and what my father who sent me is all about is what I've been doing here and it burns in us to pursue this passion and it fills me with satisfying delight and it's like eating food for me and you know nothing about it. You come back here judging her on status, judging me on my lack of proper decorum and failing to snub such an odious creature. But if you really knew why I came and who this woman is to me, you could have thrown off your worldly protocols and expectations and you could have joined me at this feast and your heart would be full like mine. I'm sure the next two days were shocking to the disciples, but I hope also hopefully joyful as many in the town would find Jesus as their savior. This is a decisive moment for the disciples as it challenged them to the core. How could we be so out of step with Jesus on something so basic? If they were going to get in sync with Jesus, they would have to embrace his perspective of people and turn from their sinful and worldly ways of judging others and showing favoritism. This is a charge at a deep level, and Peter, even as the main leader of the church, this issue would be one that continues, uh, he continues to struggle with. To get Peter to go to Cornelius' house, you may remember, who was a centurion and a Gentile, God has to give Peter a vision about unclean animals. He is told three times to kill and eat, and Peter answers, no, Lord. And God tells him, do not call unclean what I have called clean. So he does go to Cornelius' house and, and, uh, and tells him, God has shown me that I should not call anything, anyone impure uh, or unclean. So when you sent for me, I came without raising any objections. But he would have without God's direct command. That moment was necessary for him. And later, Peter visits Paul's ministry in Antioch, and he's eating and having sweet fellowship with the Gentile Christians there. But when some Jewish Christians from Jerusalem arrive, it says that Peter separates from the Gentiles. Why? It says because he was afraid of what they're going to think and what they're going to say about him. This was a blow to the ministry, and so Paul has to publicly rebuke Peter because he was influencing others and it says that he had even led Barnabas astray on this topic. The rebuke of Paul was necessary for Peter was not acting in line with the truth of the gospel. The gospel does not create a class system, rather it ends them all. In Galatians it says, so we are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For all of us who are baptized into Christ have clothed themselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for we are all one in Christ Jesus. This really echoes what I consider to be the main takeaway from this sermon. Namely, that we should be reminded that everyone we meet either is or could be an eternal brother or sister in Christ, a beloved prince or princess of God. This is what the disciples missed. For, for Christians, there are only two kinds of people that you meet, eternal friends and those who could be your eternal friends. But does this formula really hold up in real life? Well, Paul's a great example. 
in many ways. One is in the, the city of Thessalonica, for instance, was technically a city of strangers to him. But Paul knew he had family and dear friends there. They just hadn't met yet. So he was willing to, to go to them, to suffer, and if need be, to die for them in order to bring them the gospel. He could write back to them later, reflecting on his visit, saying, we were like a mother caring for her little children. We loved you, uh, we loved you so much that we were delighted to share with you not only the gospel, but our lives as well, since you've become so dear to us. Later he says, we dealt with each of you as a father deals with his own children, comforting, encouraging, and urging you to live lives worthy of God who calls you into his kingdom and glory. He goes on, therefore in all our distress and persecution, we are encouraged about you because of your faith, for now we really live since you are standing firm in the Lord. Isn't that the way a parent feels about their child? You know, where, where John says, I have no greater joy than to see that my children are walking in the Lord. This is how Paul feels in ministry to those who were complete strangers. And we see that strangers become family there. I want to give you another wonderful story, maybe two if I have time. They're so good. In another wonderful example of befriending is the story of Pastor Wade Watts, whose black church was a target of the KKK in the 70s and the 80s, the 1970s and the 80s. I remember hearing this story 30 years ago and I looked it up on, uh, see if I could find it. This is what I found. He says, pastor says this, my wife answered the phone when Johnny Lee Clary called to tell me that he had surrendered to the ministry, said Wade Watts, pastor of Jerusalem Baptist Church, McAllister, Oklahoma. Clary had joined the Klan and in 16 years worked his way up the ladder to the key position of Grand Wizard. Clary met Watts when the two debated on an Oklahoma City radio station in the late 1970s and Watts was a target of the Klan. I called Watts every name in the book, Clary said, and he would respond with, God bless you, son, Jesus loves you. Clary said at the time when he was thinking about taking his life, he looked over and saw a Bible laying on the table and remembered the happiest times in his life were the years he spent at Carter Park Baptist Church. He picked up the Bible and began looking at it, thinking I should pray and ask Jesus for forgiveness and rededicate my life to him. I asked the Lord what I should do and he put it in my mind to call Pastor Wade Watts. When I asked Watts if he remembered John Clary, he said, remember you? Son, I've been praying for you for years. I told him, said Clary, that his prayers were answered and that I had resigned from the Klan and got my heart right with the Lord and decided to serve him with the rest of my life. Clary told Watts, the reason he was calling was because the Lord impressed on him to call Watts and to tell him that he had surrendered to preach. Watts asked if he had preached anywhere yet. And when he learned that he had not, he asked Clary to do him the honor of speaking for the first time at his all-black church. When Clary asked how to get there, Watts replied, you ought to know, you tried to burn it down. At the 
end of Clary's first message at the McAllister Church, a girl about 15 years old came down the, came down the aisle during the invitation. Clary said she was crying and said she wanted to know the same Jesus that I knew. Then Clary said, I heard someone else crying and I saw Watts getting to his feet. It was one of Watts' daughters. Watts had 13 children and only four of them had, been, had not been saved when Clary preached that morning. After she made her decision, the other three unsaved children came forward to make professions of faith. Reverend Watts hugged me and said, who would have ever believed God would take an old Ku Klux Klan, Klansman, have me pray for him all these years, and he would come down here and lead my unsaved kids to the Lord. Clary said that day a friendship was born between two men who can truly call each other brothers. And a mutual friendship was born, but Pastor Watts had befriended him long before. In one more awesome story, Art Lindsley, who taught a few seminary courses I took, told an amazing story of which he had recent firsthand knowledge coming out of Florida. I remember he had just, he'd just been down there and he came and he taught this class and I just couldn't believe what he said. He said, I'm, this is what Art Lindsley said, I met Richard Wine when I visited a prison in Southern Florida. His story is unique. He came to believe in Christ because of the mother of the man he murdered. You can imagine Judy Lawson is the mother. You can imagine Judy Lawson's anger and bitterness toward this man who murdered her, her son. Judy was a Christian and even involved in prison ministry, but she was consumed by her anger toward Richard. Finally, one day, she knelt and gave her anger to God. She prayed that Richard, the killer of her son, would come to believe in Jesus. And that was a major victory, but Judy didn't stop there. She decided to write to Richard in the maximum security prison where he was serving a life sentence. She wrote something to the effect that she was praying for him and that if he asked for forgiveness for his son, for his sins, including the murder of her son, that Christ would forgive him. When Richard got Judy's first letter, he threw it away, thinking she was crazy. But Judy persisted. Over the next five years, she wrote him occasional letters to the same effect. It started to get under Richard's skin and to really bother him. While he spent two weeks in solitary confinement, he decided to read through the Bible. When he got to the book of Isaiah, he said something started to happen in his heart. By the time he finished the New Testament, he had committed his life to Christ. The first thing Richard did when he got out of the hole was to write Judy and tell her that he had made a commitment to follow Christ. And he wanted her to be the first to know. Judy decided to visit him in that prison. You can imagine their first meeting when Richard asked Judy for forgiveness for the murder of her son, and she granted it. Richard knew 
that he needed to grow in Christ, so he enrolled in a Bible correspondence course. He didn't know how to type, so Judy would occasionally type his papers. Their fellowship developed to the point where she would regularly worship at her church and then drive down to worship with Richard in the prison chapel. As I spoke in the chapel one Sunday morning, the two were sitting together, a visible witness to the power of Christ to reconcile even the worst bitterness. Before I arrived at the prison, Judy Lawson had presented a Bible to Richard Wine. Inside the front cover, she had inscribed to Richard, my beloved adopted son from your adopted mother. Affected me that way 30 years ago. Some real life stories to the glory of God, aren't they beautiful? Showing what it looks like to not be overcome by evil, but to overcome evil with good. What do you see when you look at someone? I think 2 Corinthians 5 says it best. From now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though we once regarded Christ that way, we do so no longer. Therefore, if anyone, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone. The new has come. Let's pray. Father, we are so grateful for your friendship to us as rebels, as enemies, as those who did not choose you, as those who did not love you. And yet now we can love because you first loved us. What a joy it is to know you as our Lord and Savior. And we pray that you would fill us with what filled you in ministering to the Samaritan woman, that we too would be filled with the joy of making friends in this world. Help us, we ask you, to put aside our desires for revenge or any kind of prejudices we have, any kind of elitism we have, anything that would cause us to look at anybody and think that they could not be saved, to think that they could not be a dear friend, a dear brother, a dear sister. Lord, if you saved us, anybody can be saved. Amen.